The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast and I'm Aditya Chakraborty. Coming up this week, have the banks got off scot-free? As John Vickers was busy denying he'd bottled it on measures to make the banking sector safe, share prices at the major financial institutions were soaring as the city breathed a sigh of relief. With a final report due in September, our expert panel suggests some rewrites. Also this week, the world's biggest commodity trader prepares for a $12 billion float. But is the boom in oil and precious metals over? Plus, we'll ask whether the novice investor really can make money on the markets. Joining me for all this, I have in the studio the Observer's economics editor, Heather Stewart, head of finance at Think Tank, the New Economics Foundation, Tony Greenham, financial journalist, Robert Cole, and down the line from his constituency in Hereford, Conservative MP, Jesse Norman. Welcome to you all. We see merit in a UK retail ring fence. It would prevent banks running down the capital for their UK retail activities uh, in order to shift capital elsewhere, say, into global wholesale or investment banking. And our current view is that a restriction of that kind, and it is a restriction, on the ability of banks to transfer capital within those organisations would be both proportionate to these huge problems which we're confronted with, and also that it would be in the public interest. Sir John Vickers there. Well, our banking expert, Jill Trainer was watching and has read the 200-page interim report. Yes, all of it, even down to the footnotes. The coalition set up the Independent Commission on Banking uh, shortly after the election last May. Essentially, it had two jobs. One of them was to look at how you avoid another taxpayer bailout of the banking system, i.e. deal with this whole issue of too big to fail. And the other issue was looking at competition on the high street, again caused by the financial crisis and largely as a result of the rescue takeover of HBOS by Lloyds. That deal, to remind you, only took place because Labour overrode the competition rules at the time. And so it had ended up with, we'd ended up with one very, very big high street bank. Essentially, Vickers has dealt with those two challenges with three different responses or in three different ways. So essentially, he's looked at how you could structurally change banks, the types of capital they hold, and then looked at what you can do to change the competition on the high street. If we tackle the sort of too big to fail issue first, what he's trying to look at is how do you stop what are called universal banks, these banks that have got investment banks, the casinos in Vince Cable's words, and the retail banks, how do you stop them collapsing? And is there more of a risk, say, that the investment bank collapses and brings the retail bank down with it and vice versa? So essentially, his answer to that is what you do is you ring fence the retail bank inside this wider so-called universal bank. And what you also do is, is require that ring fenced retail bank to hold much more capital. So instead of the regulatory minimum of 7%, so-called core tier one capital you say it has to be 10 percent and then what he's also done is talked a bit about the type of capital banks hold and, and and how you could make the capital that banks hold more able to absorb loss gets quite geeky but he's talking about things like cocos bail-in capital all that type of things that's going to be debated for the next couple of months and then on this whole issue of dealing with competition on the high street he's essentially sort of dug a knife into lloyd's banking group which is this huge thing that was created when 
Lloyd's TSB took over HBOS at the time of the banking crisis. He's also come up with a few behavioural responses to the competition on the high street by talking about the fact that he thinks it should be easier for people to move their accounts around. And although he doesn't give specifics about how this could be done, talks about the fact that he thinks it can be done quite quickly and quite easily. Is it a whitewash? The interesting thing, I think, when you're trying to decide is, is something a whitewash? Has it been tough? Has it been hard? Or has it been easy? Luckily, all these banks have got share prices. And so if you look at what the markets think, the market's actually quite relieved. The share prices of the banks are up. Barclays and RBS. The reality is that he hasn't done the big thing that everybody feared, which is essentially what Vince Cable had sort of talked about in opposition, this idea of splitting high street banking from investment banking. And so there's a sort of sigh of relief about that. I think the first day market reaction is always interesting. And what we won't know now is that there's another three months of consultation. There's another final report to be published in September. And then we've got to wait to decide and hear what the government decides to do about it. So the fact is that we actually don't really know entirely yet what the outcome is going to be. And we probably won't see any regulatory changes happen until 2012 at the earliest. Jill Trainer there. Uh, Robert Cole, let's go to you first. We saw bank shares rally after this banking report. And there was lots of accusations that John Vickers, the man in charge of the commission, had effectively bottled it. What's your view? I I don't think he bottled it. I think he wrote a report which uh, was a very pragmatic response to a very, very difficult situation. Um, He put in place some suggestions which are quite sensible and are quite implementable. But the situations he's dealing with is incredibly imperfect. Just on that point on the share prices, I think, yeah, the share prices went up. But I think Jill's word relief was the key one there. You know, share prices in banks have been down quite substantially over the last three months. The thing wasn't as bad as, as might have been expected or some people expected. And therefore, they've come back a bit. But to get back to the central point of the report, um, yes, it's a pragmatic response to a very, very difficult situation. You know, they're dealing with the reality the commercial and political reality and I think that they've gone as far as they might be expected to do that but I think there are enormous questions still hanging over the whole regulatory regime. Jesse Norman um, you dis- you welcome the report as being quietly revolutionary are there any parts of the report that you think might cause conservatives uh, some particular difficulties? Well, I don't particularly think so no I mean I'm obviously speaking um, and was speaking on this not just as MP but uh, as a member of the Treasury Committee. And so, you know, we've looked quite hard at some of these things. If you look at the, uh, I don't really think there's a party political angle to it at all. I think there are lots of Conservatives who think that the financial sector got way too big for its boots over the last 10 years. There are many Conservative colleagues of mine who are appalled by the extent to which bonuses outstripped any meaningful generation of value either socially or for shareholders. And uh, I think there'll be a sense of of welcome to the hard-headedness of the recommendations. Raising capital, I think, is is a good idea for the core commercial banking side. I think the potential separation of the investment and commercial banking balance sheets is a very clever filleting of the fish without having to go down the full breakup route, which would have created huge costs and also potentially some systemic risk. And, you know, the facts with the, 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 the sadness is that it looks like he singled out Lloyd's H-Boss, but the truth of the matter is that Lloyd's H-Boss was doomed from the moment 
that Gordon Brown essentially held a gun to Victor Blank's head or whoever it was and said, you've got to do a deal, because that was the point at which, if its governance systems had been working, its non-executives would have said, why are you taking the best commercial bank in this country and destroying it and destroying what's probably 95% of shareholder value at the same time? Heather Stewart, that's one point of view. There's another point of view which says that back in the autumn of 2008, politicians were full of promises of a, I know, a new Bretton Woods from Gordon Brown. Uh, you had people talking about a new Glass-Steagall Act and effectively this will never happen again. How far does the Vickers interim report go, go to meeting any of those big promises? Well, I, I mean, I, I think Robert's right that it's a sort of pragmatic solution, but it doesn't, you know, when you hear Mervyn King talk about this, he suggests that we need to go for the most we need to sort of take the idea to its logical conclusion and that, that if you think that, that, you know, it's wrong for retail deposits to be used in reckless ways and it's wrong for retail banks to be able to hold the government to ransom, uh, you know, you have to separate them completely from the other operations. And you do slightly wonder, you know, if Barclays comes to the government in, in a certain number of years' time and says, well, look, our retail operation's fine, it's over here, you know, it's, it's, it's capitalised according with the Vic- Vickers rules, so that's fine. But goodness me, Barclays Capital, which is far larger, uh, you know, we've, we've t- taken some awfully ref- reckless bets and it's going to collapse. Well, surely what any government is going to think is, my goodness, if we let it go, we're in a Lehman Brothers type situation. And it's not... It seems to me part of the problem is that our banking sector has just become too big, as Jesse suggests, and it's not clear that this does anything to deal with that problem. OK, well, as Jill Trainer said in her clip, there's still months ago before uh, John Vickers files his final report. So let's spend the next couple of minutes just thinking about how we might toughen up the report, uh, what other suggestions we might make. And I'll start with you, Tony Greenham from the, the New Economics Foundation. Give us one suggestion for making it. Be as radical as you want. Well, the suggestion would be one that was already put to them, uh, really. I think they've been too quick to dismiss the uh, various suggestions, full reserve banking, narrow banking and so on, which aim to make a clear distinction between the function of looking after deposits um, and the function of lending. And uh, they really, I, I think this springs from, uh, to an extent from a misunderstanding uh, of, those, of those proposals. So just back up and t- 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 tell us in sort of plain terms what, what, what you mean by that. What's full reserve banking when it's at home? This is a proposal that basically says that banks should do what, what the, the man in the street, if you like, thinks they do. People think that they take deposits and then lend those out. In fact, that description is in this report. Actually, what they do is they create new deposits when they lend to people. And uh, that's quite, that, this sounds rather technical, but it's quite an important distinction because um, what this says is that the, the retail banks have the power to create all the new credit in the economy. Now, um, that's fine if that credit is used in sensible ways for productive lending and that supports social sort of goals, if you like. But the history has shown that they've tended to flow much more into speculative lending and to inflate asset booms. And there's, and there's nothing in this report that's getting to that, that very root cause of the instability. It's really ignoring that issue. OK, so give us one, sum that up in one proposal that you'd make to the Vickers Commission now. To make it sort of more tractable, you could go back, let's say, to a position where the Bank of England actually controlled the quantity of credit in the economy and that it introduced structural reforms that uh, meant that more credit went to productive uses. Just to give a practical example, in Germany, for example, they have municipal banks that explicitly are set up to support small businesses 
and local customers. That's, that's real productive lending. And they can't go and speculate it in financial markets. We don't have those institutions in this country, and we desperately need them. So There's nothing in this report that suggests that those should be set up. Yeah. So I asked you for one proposal, and you give me three, <laughs> Sorry. which is that the bank should control all the money that goes around the economy. Well, the quantity of credit. We should have strategic lending, and we should have yes. a, a system of regional or industrial banks. Is that those, those are your three, are they? Uh, well, I mean, there's, there's and about... And narrow reserve uh, banking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's about ten, but I, I managed to sneak three in. So I suppose I should be Jesse happy. Norman, top that. Give us, give well, us one radical proposal for the it, biggest. Before question. I do that, can I just comment on a couple of things that have been said already? Um, I, I support many things that Heather said, but um, I think one of the things we may see is that in fact the banks do choose to split as a result of the capital segregation. It rather depends how it's going to be carried out, but that might be a rational response by some of the banks. In which case, it would have been a rather elegant way of achieving some of the things that the casino versus as it were, deposit-taking people have been calling for. Um, On uh, narrow reserve banking, the trouble with that is that many people are worried that there would be a massive deleveraging effect as that additional credit was taken out of the economy and that the short-term gains make it essentially a utopian ideal rather than a realistic proposal. But it does point, and I think Tony's right, the the Vickers Commission is not an island of itself. It is operating within a series of assumptions. And the first assumption is that the Bank of England is going to be a much tougher regulator and a proper supervisory regulator rather than the rule-based hands-off approach that the FSA took. It's going to make substantive judgments about particular institutions and about the state of the sector as a whole. So I think Vickers is operating against that background. Okay, but now I want to hear your your proposal. On the the Treasury Committee, we have recommended that that the bank should have many more levers. Part of the problem was there was only one lever that, or two levers that the regulatory authorities could pull when the guano hit the fan in 2008. The one proposal which is very radical, which I think would be very interesting to explore, is whether there should be a slight haircut for depositors if they put their money in a bank that fails. So they might lose, at whatever level they're in, 5% or 10% of their deposits. Because what that would do would be to force depositors to start asking themselves the question as to whether the bank they were involved in was a genuinely functional economic entity. And that would force the banks to feel, to feel a sense of deposit questioning interrogation at the moment. The widespread assumption is made, you stick your money in a bank and then nothing happens because the bank either succeeds or the, or the government bails you out at almost any level. So as an, as, an MP, as an MP, you would actually be advocating that Mrs. Miggins, who stuck her savings in iSave or whatever, should actually lose 10% of her savings well, if well, iSave goes under? That's not what I'm advocating. What I'm saying is that the commission should look at whether or not, doesn't necessarily, might for a very small deposit, but a small amount of money, but it just might be, in, this, this, the suggestion is that the depositors should, should be encouraged to, to think, is this bank the right place to put my money? Okay. Robert, and that, that, I think, is a very helpful and potential um, thing to look at. Robert, don't comment on what Jesse Norman's has said, but just give us your own proposal. <laughs> I'm very tempted, but tempted I won't. Is, yeah. I, I'd, I'd like, to, if I may, to, to make one observation about one of the problems uh, of, uh, that, that put us into the, into, the dif- into the difficulties in the first place and then to provide a little idea about a solution. Uh, first thing is, I, I think one of the problems uh, of the banking crisis is that we found that banks weren't run by bankers. Now, that might be quite an odd thing to, to say, because, of course, all the people at the top of the banks were bankers. But actually, I think that if you look at the, the senior echelons of Royal Bank of Scotland and HBOS in particular, the people who were in the very, very senior positions were accountants, were uh, management consultants. 
Protestants were marketeers. Goodness me, the, the, the poor chap who found himself at the top of Royal Bank of Scotland when the guano hit the fan was a pharmacist. Actually, Tom McKillop was a very good pharmacist, but he wasn't a banker. And I think that if you read across and then look at the banks which didn't do so badly or managed themselves out of difficulties quite well, and I'm afraid I'm going to be controversial enough to put Eric Daniels in that, uh, uh, of Lloyd's in, the, in that group, John Varley and John Bond, I think that they are dyed in the wool bankers who had this kind of vocation and really understood the very uh, subtle uh, sort of ways in which banking went on. So, so that, what, that, what's the proposal that leads you to then? So, so but my, my proposal is, is it would, would help that, but also be, be, be greater. I think that it is, it is an inalienable fact that actually banks are, one way or another, an extension of the state. Money is a state uh, function and uh, and too big to fail is almost a ridiculous thing because you can't do anything about too big to fail because they're all too big to fail. So what I would say is I would think that the the commission should think about um, a, a, a instituting a taxpayer share. Uh, a silver share, if you like, not a golden share, which sort of was all powerful and looked after the national interest. I'm not interested in that. What the taxpayer's silver share ought to be is to look after the taxpayer's financial interests. And so that the, the state, an arm of the Treasury perhaps, would have an ability to veto um, a po- very, very senior appointments for one thing. So bankers were appointed to the top of banks, for example, that had, had an ability to veto mergers and acquisitions uh, policy. If they'd had that uh, uh, thought, then you know perhaps Royal Bank of Scotland wouldn't have got into some of the trouble that it that it did. That it might have a, a veto over dividend policy, over quite a lot of things, and it would be a nuclear kind of uh, um, uh, share, uh, which wouldn't necessarily be used, but which was in the background, looked after the taxpayers' interests, and that way encouraged better behaviour by bankers. You've been, drink- you've been drinking a lot of Guardian water there, Robert. <laughs> I, I must say, right, Heather. I was going to say commanding heights of the economy. We like the sound of that. <laughs> Heather, you don't get away with this. You have to come up with one proposal too. Oh, it's a slightly off the wall one. Um, I mean, actually, I would. I was going to sort of echo some of the things Tony said about reserve banking, but for the sake of sort of saying something that hasn't already been rehearsing arguments that haven't already been made, it seems to me that that part of the bonus culture that we've seen is is a symptom of the fact that the market for some of the other things banks do, including investment banking doesn't work terribly well and it seems to me the reason they can pay extraordinary sums of money to even you know ordinary members of staff is because they're making super normal profits yeah, it seems yeah. to me we need a competition inquiry into but with that who competition manage- inquiry yeah, it, not in not into who managed not into the high street banking into who manages my pension and what they're being paid for it and the different layers of kind of intermediation because it seems to me that, that what the city's doing is doing much too well out of I mean, this is some some of what Mervyn King was suggesting. Really, was uh, you know about banks. I'm not sure he used the expression screwing their customers, but that was that was basically the point he was making. Um, and you know, he wasn't just talking about you and me with our current accounts. He was also talking about you and me with our company pensions and, and other kinds of investments. So I think there's something that needs to be looked at. Tony, from that I, angle. I saw you nodding your head fervently when Robert was was advocating <laughs> that the Treasury has a silver share in, the, in in our banking system. Well, I wouldn't. I mean, that's an interesting proposal. I haven't uh, I haven't thought about that, but I think that what he expressed there about money is a state function I think that's a really important point and this is again it's sort of been missed by this by this commission in this report I mean we think that the creation of money and the transmission of money those basic functions are core to the economy and they are a public good in the way that health education certain infrastructure are also 
public goods. Um, and we need to manage the banking system, and specifically the retail part of it, the retail banking system, um, along those lines. And, you know, Robert's sort of suggestion it, it incorporates that thought, and I think that's quite an interesting one. And this is, this is just absent. And this is where... You, you have to understand that retail banking is not like other industries. It's not like, you know, retailing, um, clothes or what have you. More competition is good, yes, but this is more analogous to health and education. Um, and, you know, a utility or water, a water company could improve its profits by simply cutting off a load of remote customers. Banks currently improve their profits by cutting off remote customers, closing branches in communities. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. There needs to be something in place that provides this basic social and economic infrastructure. This report has nothing to say on that. Jesse Norman, you can have last word. Of those proposals that we've heard, silver sharing, uh, a government silver sharing, a bank system, uh, competition inquiry into uh, excess profits in fund management, which of those do you think would fly? Well, I think the idea of competition is a very important one. Um, on the Treasury Committee, we are about to in- inaugurate a further extension of the, uh, of the competition inquiry we've done into retail banking, but this time going into wholesale banking. And that raises the interesting question as to why underwriting fees in the City of London have gone from 2% to 7% over the last 15 years, which absolutely makes the point that Heather makes about people being paid for sort of hanging around at a moment when money was flowing rather than actually doing anything real and the absence of competition. On the silver share, I think that's a very interesting idea. The, the one word I was waiting for Robert to use was credit. There's, a, there's almost no understanding of actual functions and value of credit outside the died in the wool bankers that he's described. Certainly the management consultants didn't have it. The investment banks surprisingly have a kind of slightly idiotic version based on risk assessment models, which are often deeply flawed. The accountants don't have it. Um, but that banking crew did have it in, in some respects. What is fascinating is that the tripartite system essentially engineered that understanding of banking out of the regulatory system. And one of the things that Mervyn King is trying to do at the Bank of England now is to restore a proper conception of credit and of public functioning of a bank as a public institution to the supervisory arrangements that he's putting in place. I don't actually agree that money in that sense is a fully public function. I think it depends on the size of of the institution you're talking about. There are many, many very small banks in Britain which um, do not uh, have those responsibilities or those roles. But for big institutions, it's absolutely right that something like a silver share should be used to represent a, or at least to have as a nuclear option alongside the other tools uh, that are being proposed for the supervisors. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Gold, silver, bread and oil. The price of the world's staples have been shooting through the roof in recent months. Happy days for the world's biggest trade in commodities, Glencore, which is set to announce its flotation this week. But could things be about to change? Analysts at Goldman Sachs believe the tide is changing and now advise their clients to take their profits and move on from commodities. So what's going on? There's still unrest in the Middle East. Food production remains at the mercy of unpredictable weather patterns and investors are still looking to the safe havens of precious metals. Is there good reason to suppose that all this could change? Robert, let's go, go to you first. Well, yes, is the, is the, is the, the very uh, straightforward answer. I think what we've seen is an enormous run-up in, in, the, in the value of, of, of commodities 
And while it is quite possible that the cycle will continue upwards for a quite a long period of time, there is no doubt in my mind that these assets are overvalued. A lot of these assets are that are overvalued, and that uh, eventually they will come back to earth. And there are lots. Um, I mean, one has to be uh, distinctive between different asset class, uh, different kinds of commodity. Um, gold and silver, for example, I think you know, are just just way too overvalued. Oil, I'm not so sure about, but then one like oil as an asset much better because it's much more useful than gold. So I think that, you know, that there are differences between particular assets. Uh, copper, for example, I think is probably overvalued as well, but one's slightly more confident about that because it's got a really important use in uh, building um, blocks of flats in China and, and, and the rest of it. But I think that, no, that there is great danger in, in this and there are lots of different reasons, one of which is that the commodities are now being seen increasingly as an investment asset class, as if they were bonds or equities or property. And I think that that, in, in one sense, is one of the real big danger signals. And I don't really think that commodities are an asset class in that conventional way. And uh, if you want one reason why I say that is because commodities don't give income. And a proper investment class, uh, asset class gives income. Uh, a property gives rent. A share gives a dividend. A bond gives its coupon. And that underlies the capital value in that asset class. Without that s- supporting strength, commodities are in a much, much weaker position. Sony Green, before you became one of the righteous at NEF, you were an investment banker. Can you explain to us how it was that commodities did become an asset class? Well, I don't know if I can um, give you the full history on it, but uh, I mean, I I just want to say that I agree with Robert that I think it's an absurdity of language to describe buying and hoarding commodities as investment. I mean, there is no sense in which this is a useful or productive thing to be doing. And in fact, George Soros, that well-known communist, described um, uh, speculating in food commodities as akin to hoarding food during a famine so as to profit from the increase in its price. You know, once again, unfortunately, in the UK, there is little appetite to join in with international efforts to better regulate commodities, to curb the financial speculation part of it and make sure that the trading that does take place, and you do need, of course, a certain amount of trading to provide liquidity, is actually helpful for the real consumers and real producers of these commodities. So, um, I mean, I suppose if there was one simple answer as to how it's developed into an asset class, um, it's two words, Goldman Sachs. Uh, You mentioned in, in your intro that they've called time on it and that's instantly sent the price of Brent crude down to almost three percent and they have been foremost in the investment banks that have been building up trading in commodities and investing in in quote inverted commas in in commodities as an asset class they've sold it to their investors made huge amounts of money out of trading it Um, and I would say that has been destructive to overall social and economic value just well that and of course incredibly remunerative for the traders involved in it but it hasn't created anything of use to the broader economy robert is it all the fault of the giant vampire squid (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i think that the investment banks have created uh, uh, channels into this uh, into this and 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 do share some responsibility Uh, but i do wonder about what ought to be done about it and whether 
you know, state control uh, or state regulation, international regulation is the answer. I'm not quite sure I'm happy of, as being a Groot, uh, 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 as, as a foot soldier of the Guardian Easters, and my silver share idea I thought was quite uh, quite modest, really, rather than interventionist. And, and in- instinctively, I'm, I'm not interventionist. I think you have to let the market sort itself out and the market um, uh, take its own uh, uh, threat of, of, of failure and of loss. And that has to be built into it. So I'm not quite sure that, you know, this market ought to be controlled centrally. I think that investors ought to wake up to the threats that are there. And I think, you know, I think we also ought to bear in mind that, you know, world economic growth by and large is quite strong. And there are emerging markets which are building infrastructure, which means there is underlying demand for commodities. So it doesn't necessarily, I'm not saying necessarily that these things are going to go all the way back to zero. I'm just saying that, you know, there is some froth there, uh, which might be blown off. I think in some asset classes, uh, commodity asset classes, there is some underlying strength and so there is some reason to be confident about the prices. But I think you have to think about the fundamentals rather than about it. As, a, as an asset uh, asset play. And that's a classic bubble situation, really, isn't it? There, there, there is a sort of true story underlying this, Absolutely, which is, yeah, you know, yeah. China has been expanding at a very rapid rate, lots of other economies expanding at a very rapid rate. They're going to need, you know, more meat, more dairy products. They're going yeah, but, to need more buildings. But, but, but actually, you know, that, then that, that story, you know, we investors start to think the world has changed and yeah. it's a new paradigm and everything else, and it gets blown way out of proportion. Because, and, I, I, you know, I mean, I was just about... parroting to, the, same, the same story. I was just about to ask you, I, this some of this is redolent of uh, late spring, early summer 2000. Absolutely. when we saw oil prices shooting through the roof Absolutely. and a bunch of commodities yeah. going up in and the price keeps rising as, as if there's not going to be an economic impact and actually you know it's very hard for, for economic growth to, to persist globally with oil prices at this kind of level you, you know it's the, the two stories don't fit together that you've got very strong global growth and you've also got rocketing commodity prices and in the end something has to give and, and that's you know, that was one part of the story. It was also a financial market story, but there was one, that was one part of the story in 2008. And, you know, I think something will give here as well. What, 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 go on, make a prediction. I, I'm, I'm not but, going to make a market prediction. I think Robert's right. It's very difficult to call the top of these things, but I think that there is a, a bubble in commodities, which, which you know, and it won't go on forever. I mean, I think Robert's absolutely right. You know, in, in some commodities, you might be able to make more of a, a solid story than others about but, where prices are. But th- th- There is one mega threat, which we don't even all, almost think about, which is that China doesn't work. Absolutely. And or splutters or goes into a period of reverse. Now, as soon as there's really, you know, almost any, any significant sign that the Chinese economic miracle somehow starts plustering. You know, a lot of other things could uh, could fall out quite quite quickly and quite uh, quite damaging. And Beijing is deliberately, you know, as 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 are lots of emerging markets, deliberately trying to slow growth at the moment, deliberately trying to tackle inflation, and that may work you know very well but they haven't got the conventional levers of interest rates and so on so it, you know it may work very well or, or it may be overkill and, and we may see a downturn yeah, no, it's, it's I, th- very hard I think to know. The, the Chinese authorities are actually acting in quite a um, an admiral kind of fashion but they have a very very difficult char- task the Chinese authorities are you know behaving better than some of those in London uh, Frankfurt or, or Washington but um... Tony come in this point about growth is crucial and oil is the most important of all the commodities because it has a knock-on impact on the price of lots of other things. It's such an important feedstock in agriculture, you know, vast consumption of oil and gas products go into agriculture. And so I think what's not been properly understood by many uh, governments and also businesses is the situation of oil supply and the fact that we are, uh, by many commentators reckoning, reaching the point of peak oil production 
This isn't to say there isn't loads of stuff still under the ground, but the rate at which you can extract it, we're, hitting, we're getting to the point we're hitting a maximum. So the price can only really go one way, but it'll go high enough until the point where it chokes off economic growth, until it comes down again. That's how the market works. We all know that. And, and so, I, you know, my prediction is we are going to see a sort of, well, we've had all sorts of different shapes of recovery, haven't we? W's and V's and U's and sort of, but I think a sawtooth is probably more accurate. You know, we're going we're gonna to have a recovery booming uh, oil prices and other commodity prices, which chokes off the recovery, sends us back down again, takes the heat out of commodities and off we go again. And the only thing that's going to break that is to transform our economic addiction to oil in particular and radically improve our resource efficiency. Robert Cole, uh, formerly Tempest Investment Columnist for The Times, I'm not going to allow you to get away without making prediction. This Glencore IPO, should should, uh, should we be filling our boots or not? Uh, no, is, 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 if you want a, a, a one-word answer. Um, but I, I, would, I, I mean, I wish this company all the best, don't get me wrong. I, I've got nothing against it. And, and there are lots, lots of strengths. But um, I think there, that there are questions that hang over the, the commodities that we've talked about here. There's questions talking, uh, hanging over over uh, Glencore's uh, model. It's a trading house. It doesn't actually own, well, it does own some assets, but a large part of its business is, is trading. That gives it, it gives it a vulnerability. There are questions about its governance, which make me nervous unless something's happened. And very recently, it hasn't got a chairman at the moment or doesn't have a, a you know, so it hasn't sorted that out. Um, and, 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 you know, actually, uh, rule one of, uh, of investing is you don't invest in new issues because the price isn't market tested i mean let's face it actually we don't even know the price of this thing we don't even know for sure they haven't officially said that they're going to come come (laughs) come to market so i mean if they go and sell shares for one p each and well yeah they might be a buy but um you know i don't think that's likely and um so i think that you know you really need to narrow your eyes on this one well i'm very glad you've talked about rule one investing because um, one of the things you might be thinking at the moment, if you're an ordinary lay investor, is interest rates are so low and you can get so little from your yeah. bank or your ISA that you might be tempted to go around investing. And you've just written a book, The Unwritten Laws of Finance Investment. So give us three points that you think a novice investor should bear in mind before they plunge in. Well, I mean, if you're looking d- d- at where to, um, where to invest, I think the f- the, I mean, let's just think of three things. The first is is not to worry too much, actually, about where the profits are going to come from in the first instance. The first law of investment is not to lose money. And the second law of investment is not to forget rule number one. So that <laughs> if, if, as long as your capital is safe, then you've crossed the first hurdle. So in that sense, it doesn't matter that um, uh, I- I- interest rates aren't terribly high as long as you can find somewhere safe to to put it second sec- second thing i'd say is that you know use um uh, the low interest environment to your advantage so that rather than saying oh interest rates are low let's go and borrow money because it's cheap actually what you should be doing is working as hard as you possibly can now while interest rates are low to pay off your debts debts is negative money right so if you want to save you want to get into positive money so that's the second thing I would say. So, you know, what what in another uh, time m- your money might have had to be going into paying off interest and capital, now is a fantastic time to be paying off the debts that you have. 
the third point I'd say is that, you know, you need a diversified um, portfolio. My book goes into some of the sort of basic kind of don't put all your eggs in one basket kind of stuff uh, and also develop some sort of more um, more more hard-headed and, and uh, sophisticated themes as well. But, you know, yes, you need a diversified portfolio. Yes, you need to do your homework. Yes, you need to think about the charges, all that kind of thing. But if you want, to, if you want me to make uh, a tip as to what kind of asset class you should be buying at the moment it's equities it's shares um clearly these are you might think are very risky but i think that compared to uh bonds compared to commodities uh compared to uh, uh compared to property as well i think that you know a properly diversified equity portfolio is the thing that you ought to be doing now you can think about that in various different ways i'm not going to suggest anyone goes out and starts buying um penny shares and what i would say is perhaps that you know you can recognize that your pension scheme that you you might have through your work uh, has a large diversified portfolio of shares that you can tap into at relatively low cost and that actually by making some additional contributions to your pension scheme or joining a pension scheme if you've got one might be the way to get long-term um, exposure to this what I think is a fantastically good asset class in most times and now very largely I think shares are cheap as well and that's the best um, protection that you can have against value destruction is if you buy something which is cheap. Tony. Uh, well, I think my investment tip at the moment would be to invest in a bicycle and some seed, grow your own vegetables and reap the rewards of improved well-being and fitness um, and protect yourself from, the, from oil prices. <laughs> and Heather, would an economist see things differently from an investment columnist? I don't. I mean, I think a lot of the broad themes, such as what we talked about on, on commodities, um, are similar. And actually, I think you know, better sort of investment columnists or, or, or investment advisors do have a sort of macroeconomic view. And, 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 you know, when investment advice gets worrying is when it doesn't, it seems to be sort of disconnected from, from broader trends and from what's going on in the world economy. And, and, you know, I think you have to sort of think about those things. I mean, I think Robert's right that you've got to be, if you think from a macro perspective, you've got to be alarmed about bonds at the moment, given the, 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 the aim of, of, monetary policy in the UK and the US quantitative easing has, has deliberately been to inflate the price of bonds. So that, you know, it seems to me perfectly sensible to suggest that that's not a great asset class. And on, the, on that ground, you know, it seems to me that, that, that Robert's right, that it, equities have got to be the best of a bad lot. It strikes me that one thing the economist might say is uh, actually watch your fees, watch the costs of any of your investments. Yeah, well, Robert mentioned that as well. And I think that's absolutely right. And that, that harks back to the, the, you know, my complaint about competition in the investment banking industry. It's all, you know, I think that's absolutely right. I think you have to look up front. At, at, you know, there's no, and the other thing you would ask yourself is, or remind yourself, is that very often the funds that have been the best performing over the last five years, which is often the way that, that you see these things rated, won't necessarily and in fact are less likely to be the best performing over the next five years so you know you absolutely have to remind yourself that past performance is not a good indicator of what's going to happen going forward and you have to look at the net the net return net of any fees well that's all we've got time for robert cole's book uh, the unwritten laws of finance investment is out now from profile my thanks to him heather stewart tony greenham and jesse norman the producer was phil maynard i'm adit chakraborty thanks for listening For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.